Welcome to Beyond Synth. Please note, Beyond Synth is an explicit program and may contain inappropriate language. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Hey there, welcome to the show. My name is Andy Last and you are listening to Beyond Synth. This is episode 77 and my guest today is Pilot Priest. This is part one. It's a lot of peas. <laughs> uh, this is uh, Pilot Priest uh, part one. This is a two-part interview because it was long. And I should also mention that this interview is going to sound sort of different than the interviews normally sound on this show because I recorded it on location. So so instead of us doing the show over Skype, he was in Toronto, and so we got together and recorded this interview in two places. We went to a restaurant, and we recorded the first half of the interview, and then we just went walking around Toronto, and I think we sat down on a bench at uh, a nearby university campus, and we finished the interview. So if you're wondering why this one sounds so different, uh, that's the reason. And when I was editing it together, because you know the way the show normally works, I'm doing these interviews you know, over the phone and uh, there's background music playing, you know, because it's uh, it's like a radio show, right? This is a radio show, isn't it? <laughs> what is this? Anyways, uh, when I was editing this interview, I realized having background music just made it sound, it just sounded off because we were in a real location and it doesn't have the same sort of trappings of a, uh, you know, radio interview. So it's basically just us walking around the streets and having a conversation. And also, since we were just having you know, a pretty straightforward conversation. There wasn't the same timing I usually have when I'm doing an interview where every few minutes I'll play a track from the artist I'm talking to because since we were having a conversation, I basically just slotted some tracks in periodically throughout the show. So normally, you know, before I play a track, you know, I'll be like, and this is, you know, Laser Balloon Jackson by Miami Radar Scope 85, and then I'll play the song. Uh, in this case, we're just having a conversation and songs are just going to drop in. Kind of the way that the show used to be, actually, a long time ago. Anyways, this is a really long-winded way of saying that uh, Pilot Priest is awesome and he's on the show and we have a really good talk. I've actually been sitting on this interview for a very long time. <laughs> Because we recorded it uh, early in the year, and uh, it was sort of hard to edit together, because since we were recording on location, there was all this uh, sound in the background, you know, people walking by, and the wind, it gets pretty windy at times, and, you know, there's certain places where the wind, like, hit the microphone, and you couldn't hear what we were saying, and I was trying for a long time to sing, like, can I filter this out and still, you know, retain what we're talking about, and so I had to make some decisions, like, there was certain sections of the interview I just had to cut out, because, you know, you couldn't hear what we were saying and uh, I couldn't salvage it. But it's still a really good talk and uh, it's a good show. So let's listen to a song because that was a really long and unnecessary introduction to this interview. This is American Nightmares by Absolute Valentine.
And that was Absolute Valentine with the track American Nightmares. And Absolute Valentine is awesome. And if you remember a few weeks ago, I did a review of a game called Defragmented, which is a sort of Hotline Miami-style game. And that track by Absolute Valentine is also on the Defragmented soundtrack, which is a, it's a pretty cool OST, which stands for Original Soundtrack. And there's some other cool artists on that soundtrack as well who I'm going to maybe play some tracks from today as well. Did you know that Beyond Synth is brought to you by Down to Jam? I think you might have. You know, Down to Jam is a free website that helps musicians around the world connect based on musical compatibility. All right? And if you're a musician looking for a partner to jam with or to fill a spot in your band, you're going to want to check out this site and sign up. DownToJam.com. D-O-W-N. N-T-O-J-A-M dot com. Do it. <laughs> That's their new catchphrase. I'm giving them new catchphrases every week. This week's is go to the site dot com. I was actually wondering, do any of my listeners own an Xbox One? Because, you know, I'm a place, I have a PlayStation and Nintendo, and I don't have an Xbox One, and I don't see the need at the moment. Uh, I'm not like a fanboy or anything. It's just when I went on to, uh, I think, Metacritic, and I was looking at all the top-reviewed games, the majority of the top-reviewed games on Xbox are cross-platform games, which I can already play on PlayStation anyways. Because when the Xbox Slim came out, I thought, you know, maybe, maybe I'd own an Xbox. I mean, if I did, that would be the, the one I would buy. Um, and I'm only asking this because I just saw this story that there is a, an N64 emulator that just released. I guess, I don't know if Xbox has like a store where you can buy apps, I suppose. That's, I don't know why they would allow a, an N64 emulator on there, but it costs like 10 bucks. And I'm just curious if anyone has an Xbox and if they've tried it. I'm sure they'll take it down from the store by the time I'd get a hold of it. I watched a few YouTube videos of this emulator. I guess it's for Xbox and also for Windows 10, I think. And it costs 10 bucks, which is ridiculous, right? Because, you know, most emulators are free, but, um... And I saw a gameplay video, but it looked really choppy, and I want to know if it is actually just a bad emulator, or if... Coincidentally, all the people who have tried to capture footage of it just don't do a very good job. I don't know why. I'm always I'm always looking for a good N64 emulator because it, it always seems to be a tricky system to emulate, which is strange considering how old it is. But it always, whenever I play certain games with different emulators, they always have these glitches, and they all have different kinds of glitches. Either the sky disappears, or it shows up really choppy, or the fog is like some solid color, and you have to turn it off, and it's just kind of frustrating because uh, there's no perfect way to emulate N64 games, except when you buy them officially from Nintendo, like which I've done with like the Zelda games and stuff, and whatever emulator they're using, there doesn't seem to be those same kind of glitches, and it's one of those things that really annoys me about Nintendo, why they don't just release all their N64 catalog because they just have it there. Like, Nintendo is a weird company, man. Like, they've got this catalog there sitting on that they could release anytime. And they just don't. And they're not doing anything with it besides that new Nintendo console you can buy, that sort of retro NES that has like 30 games loaded on it in an emulator, which is a cute idea, but, you know, they've got hundreds of games. They could... Anyway, let's listen to another song. Because this is useless. Now, I want to make sure I get this correct. Because the guy who sent me this track, the label is Borders Edge Music. But he is Ron Charon. I think that's C-H-A-R-R-O-N. I'm going to say Charon. 
and hope I'm correct. Anyway, his name's Ron Charin, and uh, it's called it's Borders Edge Music. And the reason why I'm trying to clarify this is because when I look at it in my iTunes, it's Borders Edge Music is the artist, and the album is Mona Lisa Overdrive. And um, he makes kind of uh, cinematic style, you know, uh, synth music, and it's pretty cool. And of course, the easiest way you'll be able to find this stuff is by checking out the links I post on the SoundCloud page, just in case uh, my confusing introduction to this track is (laughs) unhelpful to you. (laughs) Anyway, this is Borders Edge Music presents Mona Lisa Overdrive, and this track is called The Transwarp Incident.
And that was The Transwarp Incident by Ron Sharon or Charon from the Borders Edge Music Label from the album Mona Lisa Overdrive. So type in any one of those things and you'll find this guy. And uh, that particular track, uh, it has, says in brackets, Sequential Dreams. I think that album is actually like score music that's taken from two separate projects or inspired by two separate projects. And, uh, well... <laughs> I'm really bad today. What is this? <laughs> Listen, the links will be on the SoundCloud page, okay? That is the bottom line. If you dig that track, go check it out, and then uh, find out for yourself. Uh, I, I don't even know what I'm saying. What am I saying? They just released this picture from Justice League that shows Batman's new outfit where he looks like Owl Man from uh, Watchmen. And uh, I don't know how I feel about it, man. I have this issue with superhero movies where they have to change the costumes every film. And I get it, you know, they can make new toys and, and stuff like that. But it frustrates me when they land on a costume that actually looks good. And I just want to see a few movies where that hero's wearing the same suit. Because regardless of how you felt about Batman vs. Superman, and more than likely you didn't like it, if you are you know, within the majority, but I still thought Batman looked cool. I liked his costume. I think maybe they could have thinned out the neck area a bit, but ultimately he looked like you know, comic book Batman, and I was happy with that. And then when they showed Justice League footage, I can tell they changed the costume a bit, and then now they've shown this picture of his other costume, which just sort of goes back to more of that, you know, Christopher Nolan, like, armor-plated Batman costume, and I, I liked what they did before in Batman vs. Superman, so I hope he still wears that outfit sometimes because it's uh it's cool here i got a fun idea we're gonna listen we're gonna listen <laughs> uh normally when i do the the mail sack uh section it's you know people send me questions and stuff as you know uh you can follow me on twitter which is at andy last which is the fiddle the fiddle <laughs> That's the official Twitter account. The official Twitter account. There are no fiddles for Beyond Synth at Andy Last. And um, I have one of those accounts where uh, I have someone, you know, who follows, you know, thousands of people. I'm one of those guys. I, I have no shame about it because I'm always trying to bring people into the synthwave scene. And so I'm, I'm always looking to find people who, uh, you know, are, are tweeting about synthwave or who might have an interest in retro synth music. And this was a message I got. And as you know, people who normally do that sort of thing on Twitter, they're, you know, they're building their followers up, right, to make their accounts look good. So I got a response from someone in broken English. English, and I love this response, and this is going into the mail sack because this is awesome. So after I followed this guy, this is the message I received from him. First of all, it starts with 14 question marks. I'm living in Japan, so mainly trivia tweet about Japanese video game music composers or game development I am concerned with in English. I'm glad you are also interested in video game music also. I'm sorry to tell you this. I think of you as the account who follow me because of your marketing. So maybe soon remove me, judging from the way you have followed me on Twitter. Please forgive me if it is wrong. I hope you would follow others and remove soon only for your marketing. Your fans might feel sorrow if you did so. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I will remove you as soon as you remove soon. Thanks. So, I love this just because this... <laughs> 
The translation is awesome, so I love the idea that my fans might feel sorrow if they found out that I was following people and then unfollowing them to boost my account. <laughs> so write in and let me know. Does that make you feel sorrow? Because I genuinely, uh, you know, when I you use that sort of type of Twitter marketing, it's, it's largely ineffectual. But I find that you do get people who go, hey, you know, thanks for following. I'll check out your show. And that's the whole reason why I do it. The Synthwave community is really small. And any way we can sort of reach out and try and find people who might be interested in the show, I think is a good thing to do. But of course, it also comes across as spammy as well. And so, you know, that's that's the risk I have to make. And since I don't actually care about Twitter at all, like it's like a game, you know, uh, I'm, I'm fine with it. I mean, Twitter's been great for the show. I mean, it allows me to communicate with fans of the show and we can chat back and forth pretty easily and it's cool that way. But it's also full of shit. Like, Jesus Christ. I know there's pe- people who still, you know, they say, oh, they, they look to Twitter for their news coverage and like, dude, this there is no news. Like, it is literally just bombarded by memes, you know, of, you know, whatever side, you know, political thing just posting their, you know, conspiracy memes back and forth to each other. And very little news. <laughs> you know, like, there might be a news story buried in there somewhere. But as far as I can tell, anytime there's any actual news story, uh, my Twitter feed just gets filled with everyone responding to how the other side is going to respond to the news story politically. And that's literally all it is. It's just like, oh, I can't wait to see what those leftist social justice warriors think about this, you know, and it's literally just that. And I don't see any posts from the social justice warriors. It's all the people making fun of what the social justice warriors would say. And that's basically what Twitter is. So I focus on just communicating with people who like synthwave music because that's the only news that matters to me. Let's listen to another track. This is by Mitch Murder, and this is another track that's also on the defragmented uh, soundtrack, and this is called Night Shift by Mitch Murder.
And that was Night Shift by Mitch Murder. And you can check out that song on the Defragmented soundtrack. Uh, it's also on uh, one of Mitch Murder's albums, probably. <laughs> hey man, I did my research. <laughs> So how's everybody doing today? My wife just came home and brought a Cinnabon, which we've now cut in half and are sharing. And uh, I don't—I'm looking at it, and you know, Cinnabons are like the best things. But uh, if I start eating that now, my voice is going to be all like f- fucked up. I won't even be able to talk. Did I mention I got Pilot Priest coming up later on in the show? It's a good conversation. We had such a good talk. Like it, it was—you know—sitting on it for this many months uh, was always like, oh, I can't wait till people hear this one. It's like it's a good show. Um, but I'm curious to see how people respond, just because. Of the way it was recorded because I kind of wanted to make more shows like this where I go sort of on location and, and record an interview like not in the studio but it definitely changes the tone of the show and it'll be interesting to see how people uh, feel about it. I'm looking at the internet now apparently a Cinnabon classic cinnamon roll has 880 calories the thing is I've never counted a calorie in my life and I don't actually know what that means. What is 800 is that bad? It must be bad right? Right? How many calories are you supposed to eat a day? An average woman needs to eat about 2,000 calories per day to maintain and 1,500 calories to lose one pound of weight per week. An average man needs 2,500 calories to maintain and 2,000 to lose one pound of weight per week. So I guess, yeah, if there's one item in your diet that in the day gives you half of the calories you needed for the whole day... I guess that makes it a bad choice, but it's really hard. I'm looking at this Cinnabon sitting in front of me here, and it's, uh, I want to eat it. You know what I'm saying? This is the best episode I've ever done. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Terrible. Okay, how about this? Let's listen to another track. This is a producer from France, and she goes by the name of Aunt which is French because it's actually spelled H-A-N-T-E period or H-A-N-T-E point. And, uh, you know, j'aime beaucoup la musique de Ant. And I guess it wouldn't be de Ant, it'd be d'Ant, wouldn't it? La musique d'Ant, j'aime beaucoup la musique... What am I doing? <laughs> Here's a cool track by Ant, and uh, this track is called A Contre-Cœur... A... C- <laughs> and this track is called A Contre Coeur. Fuck my friend. <laughs> A Contre Coeur, which I believe translates to unwillingly. And I apologize to everyone who's listening with French ears because my pronunciation is shit. But that's the best I can do. A Contre Coeur. Comme ça. Anyways, profitez de la chanson.
And that was Aunt uh, with the track A Contre Coeur. Aunt is spelled H-A-N-T-E because she is French, all right? And they don't pronounce their H's. And that song is uh, it's a cool song. I love that synth sample, and I can't quite pinpoint what it reminds me of. I feel like it reminds me of, remember that David Bowie phase in like the late 70s, early 80s, when he did those, he did like an album with like Brian Eno, and there was like these sort of instrumental tracks at the end. But I'm thinking like, was that specific sample in those tracks? It reminds me of that stuff anyways. But uh, maybe my listeners can help me out. And speaking of my listeners helping me out, let's go to the Patreon. So uh, I don't know if you knew this, but Beyond Synth has a Patreon. And what that is, is it's a way that people can donate to the show and help out. Because obviously, if you're listening to this, the show needs some help. It's uh, it's not very good. <laughs> And he needs money. Uh, so what the Patreon is, it basically lets uh, fans of the show donate a monthly amount. You can donate as little as a dollar a month, you know, or you can uh, uh, donate more. And there's some fabulously terrible prizes for those of you that do. Anyways, uh, let's go to the Patreon. Like every week, I want to thank Kai and Ravonia, Marcello Bonomini, Lucas C. Lucas C. Is that new? No, it's not new. Lucas C. Oh, it's Lucas Ceballos. <laughs> You guys got to understand, every week I go to Patreon to see all the donators, and every time you guys change your, like, names, it confuses me, because then I think it's a new donor, and I'm like, wait, it's not a new donor at all. Uh, Lucas Ceballos, Brendan Kellum, Power85, Lunar Baboon, Knox Bello, Girls with Tails, Terrence Thompson, Nathan Winter, Tomas, Russ Nice, Zikorax, Python Blue. Eric Valerio and now this is a no one uh, no one <laughs> this is a new one Paul Lopes or is that Lopez is that how you spell Lopez I always thought Lopez ended with a Z or a Z for you Yanks oh now I'm confused because I, I want to say Paul Lopez but if it's Paul Lopes that's a completely different thing right because like I don't know what the origin of the last name Lopes would be anyway Paul thank you very much uh, let me know how to pronounce your name so I don't say it wrong next week and now to my lovely five dollar Pattersons these are my lovely donies donies <laughs> Fuck, what the hell just happened to me? Uh, these are my lovely donors who donate $5 a month. And we got Joe and Lando, Florence Bullock, Joey Bergeron, Roman, X-Riz Music, Sebastian SW, Philip Huberger, Devious Raven, Bobby B, John Eternal, Will Lowe, Dougie Fresh, Lame Robot Mitchell Carswell, and Hellroy. Hey, that's new, right? <laughs> Amazing. Hellroy has donated $6.66 a month. 
get it? Hell, because those are the numbers of Satan. Uh, thanks, Hellroy. I appreciate it. And now to my lovely $10 Pattersons. There's Trevor Resnick, the Fear Merchant, Jake Last, and new donor Colin Bennett, who you guys might know as FM84. That's right. He's one of the most talented guys in the scene right now, and he's donating to this show because that shows you how I don't know what that shows you <laughs> either that this show has a pedigree of quality among uh, music producers or Colin Bennett has just wasted some money <laughs> time will be the judge and of course the king of the Pattersons Scotty Galden with his fantastic $15 donation it makes him the king of the Pattersons and that is the Patreon for this week if you want to donate to Beyond Synth, go to patreon.com slash beyondsynth, and you can donate. And there's a fun little video to watch that explains the whole thing. But it's not very hard. It's uh, it's so simple, even your mother could do it. Because she's an idiot. All right, let's listen to another track. This is by Wojciech Goldowski. And this is from his End of Transmission album, which is all these cool little uh, cinematic-sounding uh, things. And this track is called Transmission 3.
that was Transmission 3 by Wojciech Goldowski off the End of Transmission album. And you know me, I love arpeggios. Arpeggios make me happy, they should make you happy too. I'm not sure why... They just should. I should mention that if you don't know who Pilot Priest is, go immediately to Pilot Priest's Bandcamp and purchase his music because he makes some of the most amazing music, and that's not even his main gig. Like, he's a filmmaker. He's, his name is uh, Anthony Scott Burns, and you can check out his uh, Vimeo, and he made these uh, really great short films. Like, he's, you know, a, a talented filmmaker. Very good quality stuff. I mean, I felt almost embarrassed talking, you know, when I was talking to him about my own productions because his are, like, you know, cinema quality level. And he's actually gone on to, I mean, I think he's currently in the process of directing like a Hollywood movie. So this guy, you're going to you're going to hear about him, man, because he is uh, he's a talented dude. And why am I saying this? Oh, yeah. So just, (laughs) you know, I haven't even taken a bite of this Cinnabon yet. All right. It's just sitting there. I had a big cup of tea. And so maybe that's what's going on. It's like scrambled my head a bit, which is entirely possible. But yeah, because sometimes I'll talk about Pilot Priest and sometimes people don't know who I'm talking about. I'm like, how do you not know Pilot Priest? Like, it's so good. He has an album. And uh, remember when I was talking to Makeup and Vanity Set uh, and we were talking about uh, Pilot Priest because Makeup and Vanity Set scored one of his short films. And we were talking about his album, Original Motion Picture Soundtrack. And it's literally 30 songs and they're all good because what he does is he takes that sort of retro he likes the retro sounds but he uses like contemporary beats and it's just it's so good it's really really good and we're about what are we we're about a month away from skyrim special edition this has nothing to do with pilot priest now by the way this (laughs) because i'm looking forward to playing it again man what games are you looking forward to write me and let me know yeah i'm I'm curious to see what uh, games people are looking forward to i mean even though skyrim is five years old I uh, firmly believe that everyone, th- there are certain games that I think everyone should have on their shelf. You know what I mean? You know, like when there's like standard books, you know, that everyone should have if you have like a bookshelf. Uh, I couldn't name any offhand because I don't really read that often, but uh, although I did order a shit ton of books, but they would be of little interest to this show because they're mostly like uh, science things and, and stuff like that. But um, I believe that if you, you know, as a gamer, I think you should have a Grand Theft Auto game. They're just fun to put in every once in a while even though like i play grand theft auto 5 maybe once every like two months it's still just a good thing to have on hand you know i think every gamer should just have a grand theft auto game on hand and i also believe that every gamer should have an elder scrolls game on hand or a fallout they're just good to have you know when you don't know what to do or you don't know what game to play you've got like an elder scrolls you can just pop in you know you can set the map and just guide you to uh a mission you uh didn't complete and it'll point to you where to go and you can just jump right in and and play and i like those big sort of open world games but uh what else you guys let me know i'll I'll talk about it next show what do you think is a game or type of game that everyone should own you know like if you go to somebody's house and they have their console sitting there and if every gamer had you know five games sitting on the shelf what should they be And, and when i say that i'm i'm really talking about sort of games that have a universal appeal like obviously you're gonna tell someone they should have your favorite game on their shelf but really when i say the grand theft auto thing because it's a it's a populist thing you know like it's it's a popular game it sells billions and they're always fun to just kind of put in and screw around with you know like if you have a buddy come over ordering pizza and 
your friend needs something to screw around with, the Grand Theft Auto is always that easy one that's just like, hey, just run around and go on a rampage for a while or something. That's what I mean. And uh, maybe there's other games that I should add to that list as sort of things that people should have. I think everyone should have a, also a good multiplayer game, uh, whether that be a first-person shooter or whatever, but that you can play with friends in the same room, which are in short supply these days. But, you know, a good co-op or, you know, competitive game should be also be in the library as well. And maybe that'll be a sports game. Who knows? I'm not a big sports gamer, but, uh, you know, maybe maybe you guys are. Listen, I don't know what the point of this is, but let's listen to another track, okay? And this track is by Volta. And this track is called It Was Underground The Whole Time.
And that was Volta with the track It Was Underground the whole time. I wonder if Volta hears it that way in his head when he came up with that title. It Was Underground the whole time? It Was Underground the whole time. <laughs> I feel like there's a bunch of people on Patreon now pulling their support. <laughs> Is there any way I can donate negative money to this show and it somehow owes me money? And we're going to be going to the uh, interview with Pilot Priest real soon. But before we do, I completely forgot the uh, Magic Sword sweepstakes. So let's uh, boot up some Magic Sword here. And there we go. Right now, we're doing a little sweepstakes thing in conjunction with Magic Sword, who's doing a tour right now in the States. So this competition is for people in the States. Or if you think you're going to be in the States for one of these shows, email me. Remember, you can get in touch with me on Twitter, on Facebook, beyondsynth.com slash Facebook. Nope. Wow, I did the same mistake last week. Facebook.com slash beyond.synth.podcast or soundcloud.com slash beyondsynth or at Andy Last on Twitter. Private message me if you want to go to any one of these shows and we're going to draw some names and if your name gets drawn, you're going to be put on the guest list for one of these Magic Sword shows they're playing. So today is the first, right, is when the show is airing and so what, some of these shows are very, very soon which means, unfortunately, that the only people who are really going to be able to submit if they want to see the show uh, are going to be people who listen to the show live on Thursday night and that's just the way it is all right so here are some of the shows so October 3rd uh, Magic Sword will be playing in Lincoln Nebraska at Vega on October 4th they'll be playing in Madison Wisconsin at the frequency on October 5th Chicago Illinois at subterranean October 8th Brooklyn New York at the knitting factory October 11th, Nashville, Tennessee at Basement East with Makeup and Vanity Set. That's the one, man. October 13th at uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas. Again, I don't know how to say that name. Uh, at Smoke and Barrel. October 15th, Austin, Texas at Empire. October 19th, Phoenix, Arizona at Valley Bar. October 20th, San Diego, California at Soda Bar. October 22nd, Los Angeles, California at Complex. October 23rd, San Francisco, California at the Makeout Room. October 26th, Seattle, Washington at Chop Suey. October 27th, Portland, Oregon at Days of the Dead Fest with The Orb. And October 29th, Hood River, Oregon at River City Saloon. So if you're interested in going to any one of those shows, send me a private message and you'll uh, have a chance to uh, to be on the guest list. And uh, that's going to be cool, man. And that's all I have to say for right now. So let's listen to another track and then uh, when we're done, we will go to my uh, conversation with Pilot Priest. So here's a track by Power Nerd, and it's called Dystopia.
And that was Dystopia by Power Nerd. And Power Nerd is a great band name. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> and yeah, that's a really cool track, man. And you should uh, check out their stuff. You know, as always, all the links to all the artists that I play on the show are on the SoundCloud description page. So if you just click on more info when you're listening to the show on SoundCloud, you will see all the necessary links to check out these people's music. And now we are going to go to my conversation with Pilot Priest. So remember, this was recorded on location, so it's going to have a very different uh, quality of sound than uh, normal episodes of Beyond Synth. And I should also point out that there isn't really a clean end break between part one of this interview and part two that I'll be playing next episode. It just sort of ends. So there's no like, let's continue this conversation next time kind of thing. It just ends. And I'm uh, just letting you know now in case you're like, what the fuck? Like, is, what just happened? That's what just happened. And now, here's my conversation with Pilot Priest. Alright, so we're sitting here. I'm sitting here with Pilot Priest, Anthony <laughs> Scott Burns. Is that how you like to call yourself? Anthony Scott Burns or yeah. Pilot Priest? Yeah. So, man, we're sitting in a diner right now. It's going to be sort of echoey. I still have salad in front of me. I've just been told we have 30 minutes, so I'm going to start chewing some salad. Nice. So, how's it going? Good. It's going really good. I just I don't even know why I came across your music, but it is awesome. And you've been making it for, like, a really long time. Yes. So, when did you actually start? Because I know that you've got one album that's called Music from 1900 to, to 2000 yeah. AD. Yes. So, to talk to me about the... Why? Well, I started making music in high school, which was a long time ago. I'm old. <laughs> and uh, I just started making music as a response to, I guess, the music that I really liked wasn't being made anymore. I grew up really emotionally getting in- attached to things like Tangerine Dream and Vangelis and, and uh, Brian Eno. And the first time that I really saw that it would be okay to make that kind of music for myself was, uh, I guess, when I listened to Air... Yeah. Uh, when I heard their very first album, I was like, okay, that's the sound that was missing, but it's it's in a different vein. That that was them sort of replaying the music from their childhood, and I wanted to sort of delve into uh, the sort of soundtrack realm that I always loved. Um, my dad was sort of a weirdo, and he would get sound... No, no, no. <laughs> I just love any sense it starts like that. Uh, he's, he's very much like me, and he would listen to soundtrack albums. He listened to a lot of funk, and he listened to... Uh, soundtrack albums and that's what we would cruise around to in the car nice. and so I think it just heavily influenced me and in, in not just synth stuff but stuff like Jerry Goldsmith and, and uh, Basil Polidorus's soundtrack to Conan and stuff just, right, right, right. just weird stuff and, and so all that sort of merged together and I, I just started making music in my basement and uh, it took over my life for a period I actually quit high school for two years to learn how to play instruments my, my dad was pretty pissed off but at the same time <laughs> he was seeing enough progress daily and seeing how into it I was that uh, he let me do it and so for two years I just I would play instruments all day long and record and I, I would work jobs I worked in high school I worked a 12 to 8 shift midnight to 8 in the morning and then I would go to high school and I kept that job my graveyard shift and I would come home and record on a four track all day long what were you doing what was the job video store (laughs) (laughs) so my interests of film and music have been sort of merged and sort of ever since the beginning but yeah so I just I just would record and record and record and, and eventually you know as computers got better I was able to 
transition and uh, so then how, how's the process changed now because you've been doing it for so long so like when you started out what were you what were you playing what were you using to record I had uh, well like a four track and I had an ARP Odyssey that my dad back then synthesizers were dirt cheap because no one wanted them <laughs> and uh, we, would, we would sort of hit Value Village and stuff and I, I got an ARP Odyssey for $12 at fucking Value, Value Village, Village. Have you been to Value Village lately? <laughs> I know. It sucks. I know. Uh, and, and it's really interesting because I, they, they said it was as is because they didn't know how to program it. So for people plugging it in and just turning it on, it would go... Right, right. You know, and they didn't understand that you needed to know where to put the, the knobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and sliders to get a sound out of it. So it was really cool. So I started with that and I had a... I worked for, I don't know, a huge amount of time to save up for a drum machine. I think it was an Alesis SR-16, the same thing that uh, Ween used on Chocolate and Cheese. I don't know if you know that album, but uh, very, all the same sounds. And uh, I think it was an Alesis MIDI verb was my effects processor. I just think it's hilarious that you got an ARP for 12 bucks. Yeah. I think that there was a point where it dipped, and now it's kind of coming back again because people are there's a lot of people who like that that retro sound and yeah. stuff and so like even if you go on like ebay or whatever like you're not gonna get like a korg or a moog or whatever like for cheap like there's still yeah no they're they sort of hover around the 700 to 1200 dollar range yeah i have a bunch of keyboards in that range but i also i like trolling around for things that aren't aren't so expensive just to see interesting sounds like i have a lot of weird synthesizers that are just people would think are probably shit but they, they have a nice sound to them so so then how much of your setup is uh, physical versus like vsts and stuff like that it's about 50 percent. yeah yeah i have my favorite vsts are obviously the arteria selection of vintage uh, synthesizers i have a selena string machine on there the, the vst version that i'm currently in love with yeah, but it's it's all composed now in Ableton. Because I got, like, a sense anyways from the 1990 to 2001. Like, I got, like, some Boards of Canada vibes, like, with some of those tracks, too. I think it's, like, MCP is the one that sort of had, like, a yes. Boards of Canada kind of vibe to it. But the way that you've ordered the tracks, are, the, are they in order of age? Because, I, I don't know, I'll tell you what I felt when I listened to that album, is that you start to find the Pilot Priest sound... Like as it goes, because yes. I think it was, um, it's New Veroder, that that track. That was the one where I listened to that one, going like, okay, here, here it is. Here's like he's stumped, he's found Locked the Pilot Priest yeah. sound.
Let's talk about that track. New Verotor? Man, it's, this is it's so funny to... 20 years ago, uh, yeah, I... Uh, yeah, no, well, that one was probably closer to maybe 15. We'll talk maybe just generally about that album itself, right? Because, I mean, obviously there's a lot of time. Yes. Just the, the timeline of the songs themselves, so like... Well, I was, in, I was living in Edmonton at the time. Most of those songs were composed, and uh, it was very cold out for nine months of the year, and so I had a lot of time to experiment and, and build a sound, and... Uh, Again, I, I say that I wanted to make music that... It's weird. I never had any goals of making music that other people would listen to. It was really made for me because I wanted a certain type of music to exist, and it didn't, which was, you know, soundtrack from the 80s, but with modern production values and, and beats, because I, I, I love beats. And, yeah, yeah. So that's the merge right there is kind of how it happened. So then during that time, though, I mean, like, were you... Do you still have a lot of the equipment that you built up? Have you been, like, selling things off? Or I'm, I'm constantly selling and trading, constantly. Right, yeah. Like, in, in town here, I'm, like... I don't know, I'm always on Craigslist and doing trades and stuff for equipment. Do you ever, like, sample your keyboards before you sell them? No, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know if you've seen Adaptation, but yep. I, I get to the point where I'm like, fuck fish, and I just, yeah. like, I'm done with that sound, moving on, and so I just I just get rid of it and then get something else. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a nice way to sort of refresh the sound. Yeah. yeah. Adaptation is awesome. Yeah, that's well, a great film. No, it's a great film. It I, makes me laugh a lot. I hadn't watched it in years, and I watched it, I think, just like a few months ago again. And that movie is like one of the funniest. Like, that movie is so funny. Yeah, no, it is. It's dark, darkly funny. So, with this one, what made you choose the tracks? I'm assuming you made more than this many songs yes. in 10 years. So, like, because, and it's precisely what you were talking about, is I chose those to sort of, sort of show the... Uh, the progression and the the starting point and sort of how I got to my current sound. How long did that take? Do you figure? It was a decade. <laughs> <laughs> it was a de- it was a decade because I wasn't doing it full time. So this was music was always a way for me to sort of zone out and and recharge and get inspired. So it was just a way for me to I call it my therapy, and then it just turned into something that people actually like listening to. Did you have like a eureka moment? No, in the, hindsight, did you look back? The and eureka go, moment for my sound actually happened on original motion picture soundtrack, and that was the song "Thief." Right. That song for me was this is where I want to be. I want to have the sounds from this era meeting with these exact this set of production value, and uh, so that was the eureka moment for me was yeah, that yeah. song because it had like I was using my DX7 to create like just silly sounds that were working within this genre that bong that opens up the, the, the bell sound is I think it's straight from Top Gun mm-hmm. and I think Eric Serra uses it on a lot of the <laughs> Luc Besson stuff that is you know that stuff has, has a you know like a huge spot in my heart and so when I was playing on these these older keyboards and finding these sounds I was like there's a way to use these sounds that people think are silly for something emotional yeah so. So you also do film stuff now, right? Yes. When you are making music, are you... Writing movies in my head? No. It, it, it really comes from a place of... People often ask that and wonder if, if I've got like movies in my head. No, I just sort of start with something and build upon it, and that's it. I have a weird question then, because there's been people who have taken your tracks and made like music videos and stuff. Yes. 
and which I'm, I, I love them. I love them. Okay, that's what I was going to say. So, like, when you see those, because obviously if you're, like, doing film stuff, I mean, I'm not saying, like, at the same time as music, but it's something you're thinking about. Like, you write and... Yeah, of course I want to have an emotional... The thing, the thing that people are responding to is I'm trying to put whatever emotion I'm feeling at the time into the track. Right. I'm try, I'm actually, that's why I'm saying it's, like, therapy for me, is I'm trying to expel an emotion into the, the music. Yeah. So that it actually leaves me and goes there. <laughs> So then that's what I'm thinking. So it's like, say you write a track and then now you've obviously listened to it on a loop, you know, like hundreds of times or whatever. Yeah. So there must be like some sort of imagery or something like that you hear it and go like, this is what I would put to this music or do you actually are completely like it's just it's in its own zone? Maybe after a while and I've listened to it a couple times, but when I'm composing it, no, I seriously go into a trance and I just write whatever feels right. So are you surprised by what people come up with like when you see a thing and say they use my track and they just have an image that's just like oh wow i didn't think that would suit i'm I'm usually pleasantly surprised like when i see fan edits or and they've thrown like you know images from you know bright lights big city or or total recall or flight of the navigator it always you know it seems right i think that would be like the trickiest thing i have i have a very like kind of visual brain so for me, I do some like video stuff. I don't think like on the level of, of things that you do, but like I'm always thinking of pictures. So like when I listen to music, that's what's going on in my head. I listen to your tracks and I'm thinking like, yeah, it's a rainy night and robots fighting on a rooftop or something like that's what's in my well, head. Well, that happens after. That's what I'm saying is that after I've written it and it's, let, and it's settled, mm-hmm. then I'll have moments where I'll listen to something and go, oh, okay, this would be cool for this or that. But when I'm actually writing it, I'm not thinking of those things or maybe I am, but they're not being consciously decided upon. Do you score stuff that you've made? Like, Yes. I score almost everything. That I've now, is that the point? No. You know what? It's weird. It's when I make this stuff and I'm, and I'm shooting, I'll usually make a temp track mm. that creates the emotion that I want and then I'll build upon that in post. It's weird. I, I can't really explain where it comes from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know, but uh, I'm sure if I sat here and thought, uh, thought about it long enough, I, w- I would come up with a, where the sort of inspiration comes from. But Let's just say God. <laughs> that's, that's, that's not. Um, yeah, maybe. There you go. Great. Uh, yeah, God inspires you. No, uh, no it's, it's a good question. I don't really think about it often, but it just, I know what it should sound like. And I think that's why um, on one of my new film projects I'm working on I've actually I'm going to be co-composing the score I'm not going to tell you who with yet Ooh. but it's someone very cool Ooh. Uh, and they may or may not have worked on the Drive soundtrack um, <laughs> and uh, we're going to be doing something together and you know maybe probably taking up 50% of the slack each uh, to compose the soundtrack but we're both exactly on the same way, wavelength and, yeah. and I think that's it's going to be a really really cool partnership but the idea is that, you know, when you're scoring your stuff, you just know what it should sound like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that just takes a lot of the guessing out of creating a piece of art for me, is that I score my films because I know what they should sound like. Yeah. And it, m- it might be- take me, you know, a couple weeks or a month to explain to someone else. I'm lucky that I found in uh, this person and group that uh, I'm working with it won't take that long because they, they understand the vibe exactly. Yeah, that's perfect. We have to talk about original motion picture soundtrack because, like, that's where I found you and, like, it is, it's one of my favorite things. Like, it's so good. But, like, just I want to finish off the, uh, the 1900 yeah. to 2000. So I want to listen to a track called Now Sport. 
Hold on, I'm going to pick this up. This is a track called Now Sport by Pilot Priest. This is, <laughs> this is the weirdest episode I've done. Yeah.
And that was Now Sport by Pilot Priest. So I like this track. This was sort of the tempo of this one. Like this was sort of like an upbeat yeah. kind of track. And so I know like you balance that now. Like I'm terrible with music terminology, but they're not necessarily like happy tunes. They usually will go through some sort of get like maybe some, you know, synth line within the song will have a happy sort of melody. But then on top of that, I'll layer some sort of pads or something that tell you that there's more to it than, than that. Right. That's why I say that it really is dependent on how or when I composed the song. They really are reflections of how I'm feeling at the time. So if I write a song when I'm feeling pretty good about things, it goes one way. If, I, if I'm feeling pretty shitty, I look out the window and I'm like, I want to, you know, <laughs> drive through some people, yeah. then uh, that's how it ends up. Yeah. That's how the song ends up. How long did it take you to do original motion picture sound? Because that's an epic album. Like, yeah, there's like a long time. 30 tracks on no, that's a, that's That album is... About three years of composing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's awesome. Like, why did you not have that be three albums? Like, what, what, did, what, was, what was making you go, this is all part of one thing? Do you know what? It's weird. Original motion picture soundtrack was going to be the end of Pilot Priest. Yeah. And I put it out as sort of like, okay, these are the songs I've been writing. I don't make money with my music. I don't put it out very often. I had a SoundCloud that did okay. You know, like people would listen to it and go, oh, I like your music, but not a lot of people. And I still don't have a lot of people. It's weird. I don't have a lot of followers, but the people who do are very, very loyal and, and they really like listening to the music. So it's really cool. But I, I, that was sort of the end for me. I was, I was going to say, okay, I've been doing this for long enough. I'm, I'm busy in my film stuff. I'm not going to make music anymore. And when I put it out, it seemed to do really really well yeah, and yeah people really enjoyed it and i got a lot of positive response and so it was it was and it was weird it was sort of the moment when people were accepting of that style of music too because that's the weird thing is when you listen to the older stuff it's not that different mm-hmm. but people when they would hear that they would go mm, you know because it was the 90s and the 2000s early 2000s people weren't really interested in synthesizer music until original motion picture soundtrack did come out yeah and so it was sort of the perfect i guess time to release it well then is that because when we first talked which i'm thinking now was like two years ago i was messaging back and forth with you about doing the show and i don't know why we didn't but (laughs) well I, i got the impression from you with your messages that you were like that it was like the end of the pilot priest Story, you know, because this was like I've been doing the podcast now for like three years, so this would have been I think in the second year. Now I found you, I found your music when I was doing the first season, and I was just like, oh, this is so awesome. And then when I found out you, you part of your life is in Toronto, right? mm-hmm. the majority of it, right? Like you go back and you go to LA. Well, there's an in, be- in between period that we're not talking about that not many people know about is after I a couple of those songs had gone on. Sound, like I did some remixes. I did a remix of Run DMC that got quite a lot of press. Right. And uh, I got signed to a label out of New York, and they wanted me to write more music like that. And so I I spent about two years writing popular music, what I would call popular music. People wanted more up-tempo. So there was this in-between period where I was writing music for, I wouldn't say for money, because I wasn't making any money, but with the intent, people were were sort of writing me, not, not, you know, maliciously, but they really believed that I could make music that would make money. And there was... I think it was on the front cover of like Now Magazine here, where it was like Future Sounds in Toronto, and I was one of the three. Yeah. And and then it, I just realized that I couldn't make money, or I couldn't make money. Yeah, I probably could make money, but I couldn't be happy writing music that way because for me it wasn't about just making deadlines. It was about how do I feel? I feel like writing some music. I'll sit down and write it. Yeah. 
and uh, so I just sort of quit cold turkey then and then started realizing in between work that I still needed to write music to feel good and so that's how original motion picture soundtrack happened so that's music that I like because yeah when we did talk it was like it must have been it must have been shortly after because I think it was the point where I knew you had it up on Bandcamp and then you you took it down because you were remastering it and I think it was around it was right around that time I can't remember fully what we because I always clear out my message inbox or whatever but it was literally like two years ago and we talked for a little bit said well let's do this sometime and then it's like, yeah, this will be like, you know, my last interview as a pilot priest or whatever. I'm like, this will be like a nice thing. And I'm like, all right, cool. Like, that's cool. And then two years went by and like, we just didn't, uh, it just didn't Well, you happen. know, I think it wasn't that I was quitting, it was is that I was also sort of happened at the same time that I was quitting social media to some degree. Like I was not going to be... Right. I recall that tweet. Yes. <laughs> and, I still, and I still have updates on Twitter. where I, When I, I put out my music, that's when I'll talk on Twitter. But I don't sort of put my opinion out there anymore. Yeah. It's because it doesn't do anything.
Yeah, I don't. I, I'm not like um, like an opinion guy when it comes to like publicly talking. Like that's why yeah. I, I will like on the podcast talk about like movies and games and TV and stuff because it's like it's nice when people are out there that can be so honest that they'll have opinions that are somehow like socially controversial and stuff. Like I'm not the kind of guy that has those really. You know what I mean? It's not like a place. It's like a forum for politics. It's like a place where it's people also not can a place where relax. people are, are are very genuine and 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 so I'm not really interested in hearing people's opinions on how things are dealt with on Twitter. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a silly place. But it's, it's it's been fun for me like kind of getting It's been great for me as an artist yeah, because right. that's how people find me. So I don't turn my back 100% on it. I just don't put my opinion of movies or or yeah, anything yeah. out there. So Yeah, I'm always careful about that. For some reason I'm I'm so much more comfortable saying that stuff on the podcast. <laughs> But then it's like it's also my voice. Yeah, it's, it's like I won't I won't type it. Well, because the f- sad fact is people probably will l- listen to full podcasts less than they'll just oh, look at people's Twitter feeds. So, oh, no, so it's actually safer for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, when you see stupid stories of people whose like Twitters get like destroyed by the wrong thing, like mind you, I'm not the kind of guy who would ever say a thing mm-hmm. that would be like, you know weirdo Canadian goes on racist rant or whatever. Just like that's not going to be me, like in that headline, but. Um, I do have some pretty amazing opinions if you want to hear it. <laughs> about race in this country, man. I don't oh my god. <laughs> it would be so awesome. To like, oh my god. I always want to do this because we've just met for the first time like yes. today, this afternoon. And I always have fun with that because like I get very comfortable with people very quickly. Whereas I don't. So, so for me, it's always hilarious when I first meet somebody just going like how far can I take a stupid joke? Cause I, like, yeah. So I, I'll lay things out now just be like I am like a not a religious guy. I'm an open-minded, liberal-minded kind of guy. But at the same time, I do love a good ironic, uh, I'm offensive, just, I'm, I'm awful just, joke. But it's like you can't pull those things. Sorry, Thank you. guys. That's yep. just gonna, yeah. That's the bill. Oh uh, yeah. Okay. Sad, thanks. Yeah. I'm gonna pay the front. No worries. So yeah, for me, it's like you know, I love good, uh, like ironic well-placed kind of jokes not that all my jokes are well-placed well, that's but, the problem is that and you have to know somebody yes. personally and and specifically in order to know irony because there are certain times where i've done maybe made like a video that i'm like oh this is clearly a joke or the thing i just said is clearly a joke and if you get the weird response i made a video called cat kick and it was me testing a special effect so i took my friend's cat put it in front of a green screen screen and then he just runs up and goes like, hey, Murphy, and kicks it, and it just flies off screen. It's like one shot. It's a funny video. It's five seconds long, and it's like the most watched thing I've ever made. Because it's five seconds long. And it's cat kick. Yeah, and it's cat kick. And to me, I'm just like, okay, A, to me, it's obviously fake. I see the fringing of the green screen around the hair of the cat. Like, I'm looking at it going, this is, people will laugh because it's so quick and stupid. It got it got taken off YouTube at one point for like violation because Someone people thought it was real. It. Like, and I'm just like, dude, like it's. It, so then I made this joke follow up video of like the making of it, and it's like a five second video followed by this six minute like making of video of like. And but the making of video was just making fun of people who thought it was real. But then one of the comments, and this one still stands in my head to this day on Cat Kick, is how dare you? <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's this. It's it's, it's someone says. You fucking kicked it for real, man. I've been waiting for a video like this. <laughs> I, I like I both. I love that comment, and I'm always just like, what? <laughs> I've been waiting for a video like this. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? <laughs> you know, I there's a part of me that loves YouTube comments so much. 
odd. I've seen some of the funniest... But they horrify me at the same time. It's a horrifying laughter. There's some people in the world that blow my mind. Like, I just don't... I can't get into that headspace. Well, and that's that's the interesting thing, is that we're sort of led to believe as children that we're all sort of the same. Mm. And I think to some degree, when when, when we're in elementary school, we do occupy the same mental space. And as we sort of develop, it's so interesting how diverse mentally we become. And (laughs) it's it's a scary thing because, you know, as, as a sometimes writer of fiction... You go, it's hard to get into a character's mind because there are so many of them. And yeah. we think there they, there aren't. I mean, like, look at how psychology sort of goes. Well, we're all basically the same thing. But we're not because who's commenting on that? Yeah. And also, too, I mean, it's such a small... It, it, there's also this this there's a disproportionate idea of like what comments mean as far as like the percent. Because like, uh, I, I was talking to a dude who works at like, IGN and, you know, like the games website. And so, you know, all video game commenters are all just people who hate whatever the hell is being posted. And he told me it's basically like, dude, it's like, it's like not even 1%. You know, like they know the traffic they get to that website. It's like one of the most popular video game websites. So like, you know, millions of people are like watching video game news. There's like 10 comments on a thing. Those people like have accounts with, you know, like IGN to be able to comment and stuff. And it's a small percentage, but they become like this vocal small percentage because when you're scrolling down on Amazon and you're reading reviews and there's like five reviews you're going to read those reviews and yet I've purchased so many things on Amazon I never write a damn review of anything exactly. even when they send me yeah. the email they're just like did you like this I'm just like fuck off like did I like it I bought it I mean like if I didn't return it I liked it or I was ashamed to return yeah well it's, <laughs> it's interesting to think of things that way because that's one of the one of the I guess notions that kind of creeps me out about the internet is that is that people think it's the reality mm-hmm. when it is in fact that one yeah. percent and so the mob mentality that we sort of run on is, as you know base humans is sort of now based on and saying people who actually take the time to yes so when people read comments they go oh this thing probably sucks because there's eight guys on here that say it sucks yeah and it's it's kind of it's interesting to build your opinion based on that like i mean think of how important rotten tomatoes is mm-hmm. for films i mean at least yes, they say they're critics but i mean a lot of critics now are just internet bloggers yeah i mean with rotten tomatoes at least it's a mathematical thing of a bunch of reviews i mean so like it's a little more but i mean there, there have been movies okay like i think rotten tomatoes is a pretty decent thing of like if a movie's got like 20 percent it's a bad like i doubt i'm ever gonna go on there see a movie that got 20 and be like i loved this film and everyone didn't understand it like i just i've never been in that situation in the 80s you would have been in that situation many times and that's what's interesting about blade runner yeah yeah yeah. i mean blade runner 2001 almost every classic that we love now would have been a a 10 to 20 (laughs) on the tomato i wonder too if it would have been different if you were just in that time. Because what I love specifically when I about Blade Runner and 2001, those are great examples, because both of those I watched in high school when I was first becoming a film nerd, and I was given no pretext. So Blade Runner, because Blockbuster Video used to have this deal where you could rent 12 movies for like a week for 20 bucks or something if they were old releases. And that's when I saw the majority of films that are now all my favorite movies. And the only thing I went into Blade Runner with was my older brother just going like, 
Yeah, Blade Runner's cool. That was it. Like, that was it. Yep. And then I watched Director's Cut first. I didn't even watch the theatrical cut. Like, my first experience was Director's Cut. I saw the theatrical cut when I was five. Yeah. My uncle tricked me into it, and he was like, hey, and <laughs> Solo's in it. And that's exactly how he got me in. And, yeah. and as a five-year-old, I saw Blade Runner. So it's deeply imprinted. And the same for me with the 2001. It's like I had a, a history teacher who showed us the intro, like just the, the apes part. I guess often referred to as the Dawn of Man sequence, or or, or I've just called it the apes part. And uh, I watched it, and I was just like, oh, this seems kind of cool, I borrowed the tape, and I took it home. So I went into that ending, A, the second I saw it, going, like, now I get, like, a ton of Simpsons jokes. Simpsons, SCTV, there's, yeah, there's many, many things that have... And that was was an example of just, like, being told nothing and then having my mind blown. 2001, like, just blew my fucking mind. And I had no preparation. I thought it was just some simple science fiction film. Yeah. And that ending with all the fucking lasers, I was just going like, what is happening? And I loved that I didn't understand it. Like, that's the thing. Some people get upset about movies they don't understand. And to me, it's just like, if the, if the craft is there and it's like, it's good, like, I, I don't mind not knowing. It's just, there's certain things, like, I think, where if you feel like something's been left out of the plot that yes. causes confusion, then you, that's obviously not a good thing yeah. to not know. But, like, the end of 2001... I never read the books. I didn't even, as a kid, didn't even understand that that was like aliens monitoring this guy. Like I did not get what I was watching. I just saw a guy getting older and walking into different rooms and seeing older version of himself and the story continuing. Like I didn't. Well, have the any cool thing about that is it's not that it's missing anything, and and so it's just that it's up for interpretation. Right. And that's the cool. It's not that they're they're not telling you something, and I think that's the mark of you know a really good movie is not that they're not telling you something, is that they're allowing you to interpret. Yeah. Information. Yeah. And that's exciting for many people's brains. Yeah. And yeah. that's what I think you're responding to and what I respond to in those kinds of movies is the excitement that your brain goes, I don't know what's going on, and you get to figure it out. Yeah. Or have your ideas. And that's why people respond to David Lynch films is that he's not missing ingredients. He's allowing you to interpret them. What I love about David Lynch, I don't know if I'm in the minority on this, but I find his movies really funny. Oh, yeah. Like, there, there like is a lot hilarious. of humor. There's a lot of humor in them. When I first saw uh, Wild at Heart, when like Willem Dafoe blows his head off at the end, like at the bank, <laughs> we were with our buddies and we just like just were starting crying. Just like how his entire character is quite humorous, oh, even though he's he's vile. Yeah. No, everything like you know Willem Dafoe was having a great time oh, playing. There was nothing better than the relief, like the laughter of relief from that scene where he like confronts like Laura Dern like alone in that oh. thing because it's such an intense and frightening scene and when it gets ended with that joke I mean like I think maybe certain people could watch that scene and be like from her perspective like that's just a horrifyingly scary sequence Absolutely. like there's nothing yeah. redeeming about this but just just ending it with this this stupid joke and then just like it's one of the funniest things like to get to that point you know and like, yeah, totally. I always I always find with, with Lynch he always there's always like one really crazy death scene. Yes. As for like Lost Highway, like the, the dude table. does the Superman <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And the first time we saw that. But I mean, again, just, you're going to say Lost Highway. Like that cracked me up too. Yeah, when he's, yeah. he's in the table. But also the little things like Bill Pullman and, and the, whose dog is that anyways? Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff where the cops, like there's, and you have to have that levity in stuff that's that harsh. Robert Loggia in that film in Lost Highway is fucking hysterically funny and also like even the scenes that are like creepy like the scenes with like it's Robert Blake right like yeah. you know just, just 
give me back my phone. Like, just, yes, it's, it's fucking no, hilarious. I remember seeing that in the theater, and people laughed at that line. And it, it's made to have a laugh, but having that laugh in, built inside, you know, something so creepy and dark, it's, oh man, the guy's a genius. Huge influence for me, for sure.
for Toronto's uh, wind tunnel. Okay. Uh, Bay Street. See, this is the kind of shit where when I start doing my show, I want to find like zones like this. You know, or just like these really simple looking like concrete squares and then just have robots fighting in front of them. I don't know if you ever saw my short film Manifold. Everything I shoot is, tends to be brutalist buildings yeah. because I love them in Toronto. But right behind there is the building from the sort of uh, the main corporate offices. Yeah, brutalist, that's the word. Yeah, brutalist. No, Toronto has a, a very, very robust amount of uh, <laughs> brutal buildings. Yeah. But I really do love them. There's a lot of directors who come here uh, just for that. I should point out that we are walking right now and I'm like an asshole holding a microphone to your face. <laughs> no, that's fine, that's fine. <laughs> I'm most thrilled that I'm able to do what I enjoy and that people are able to enjoy it as and, well. So that's that's the plus. And the plus is that it's good. Well, no. Dude, no, because I, I mean, people send me things. Mind you, though, sometimes I think... For me personally, like, okay, so so my show is, you know, has a small audience, right? So, yes. obviously, then I'm, I'm more approachable as someone who's, like, just done a Fruity Loops tutorial and, like, says, hey, I can make sense wave, you know what I mean? Yes. And clearly, there's a much, there's a lot of difference between, like, a lot of the, a lot of the people I've had on the show usually have a background in music a lot of times in bands and metal bands and things like that and then and then they get this thing like they want to do music on their own maybe they don't like the being in a band you know and stuff like that and you know obviously making electronic music is like one of the easiest ways to express yourself musically by yourself just because it's all there and especially like in programs that you buy and like logic and fruity loops and all that stuff you've got instruments you've got everything there yeah. So it is like a way to do it. But definitely I can see the difference between people who have a musical background and don't, people who have just been doing it for a long time. Interestingly, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you $100 if you can guess the kind of music I played before. <laughs> Were you in a band? Yes, I was. You'll never guess what kind of music we played or, or the types of bands we looked up to. Now I'm trying to yeah. guess the thing, like if it's going to be like, oh, it's prog rock or like... Hold on. <laughs> So now we're going through a corridor in, in the university section. We have to uh, make use of this echo right now. It's a nice echo. <laughs> okay, take my time! Yeah. Sorry if that embarrassed you. <laughs> there you go. This is, this is a good spot. Right okay. Here. We don't have a lot of uh, ambient noise. Uh, what were we talking about there before we went through the corridor? Oh, what band? Okay. So I'll tell you, you didn't, you're not going to get it. Is we used to play a lot of music that was very influenced by Mr. Bungle. What's Mr. Bungle? It was a Mike Patton, and he was the front man, and, and he was the singer for Faith No More. And uh, so it was sort of like punk rock jazz. Should I know Mr. Bungle? You should. You should. You should look up <laughs> Mr. Bungle. It's amazing music and it's uh, it just has an attitude that I really responded to which was I respond a lot to uh, honest anger. Right. <laughs> I don't like angst. I don't like angsty music, but I, I like honestly ang- angry music like punk band called Fear. Well, there's a che- there's such a cheesiness to that fake like the screamo kind of music. Yes. Where it's yeah. just like, well, this is the music we make, so every song has to be like 
sung in that way and then it and it sounds false like well I never responded to angst which is whining about things that suck yeah I like just being angry yeah <laughs> you know like being angry is a real emotion yeah whining about being angry doesn't do anybody any good and so that's why I've never liked like angsty stuff I like stuff that is just genuinely angry and so when we listen to Mr. Bongo you listen to really well played music with a sort of underpinning tone of anger what was your function a guitar player okay yeah. so how many members in the band what'd you call yourselves uh, I can't tell you what we call <laughs> so, uh, no the reason is we, we were we were really struck by uh, a Dutch culture it was really what it, ba- it baffled us that, that they had this character called our band name was Varta Piet and and that means Black Pete and okay. he is sort of they are the the helpers of Santa, but they're they're horribly depicted. It's very racist. Oh yeah, and we yeah. Were, and we were sort of taken aback by this, how this could still be practiced. And in mm-hmm. fact, I was recently in in Amsterdam, and it's still practiced. Yeah, <laughs> they have decorations of Zwarte Piet that are absolutely racist and they're in the windows of bakeries and stuff and it's just like something they do and so I think it was our adolescent statement at like how the world can be just absolutely fucked sometimes well dude I'm from a small town and I think literally there was a house that within only like the last five years got rid of you know those little like those black they're like black men holding lanterns and they're like they're, they're almost like garden gnomes but they're like the full-on racist ones, where like the oh skin is black with like the red lips and stuff. Oh my gosh! Oh, well, they mu- <laughs> but yeah. I've always found that fascinating, anyways, because like being in a small town and like you know, there's like that mentality. It's like oh, when you're a city and you're surrounded by all these different cultures, and so you're more open and blah blah blah. And then small towns, and I, I experienced it too. Like where I'd be in a small town, there'd be like racism and stuff, and just like, dude, you guys have never even seen a black guy. And it's funny because in my life just because that was part of something that was instilled in me uh, even though I traveled all over the world and thank Christ I did yeah. uh, I took two years off of school like we're full on like travels around the world where I didn't go to school for a year or twice and that was very helpful for my upbringing because I saw the world and saw that you know the small town wasn't like the be all end all sort of thing yeah well it's important my main sort of ideology is empathy yeah that's my main ideology in life is trying to have empathy with everybody even assholes because it's important uh everybody has their own story that's why i responded so much you know so heavily to the films of michael mann and things like blade runner blade runner is a perfect example you know it's about empathy tests but you know at the core the film itself is about empathy in that you get to meet the villain and you get to experience the villain as much as you experience the hero, the quote hero, and that that's the same in Manhunter, uh, where you know you've got Will Graham, but then you've got Francis Dollarhide, who's being given the same equal treatment as a person, even though he is the villain. And yeah, that's why you know those films really struck a chord when I was a kid, and I didn't know why until I was older, and I I realize now that it's because they portrayed a world that I could understand, which is one where you try to get in the minds of other people as much as possible so that you can have a, a fair representation. And you also, uh, we also can't forget uh, Tom Noonan's brilliant take on the character Kane in RoboCop 2, the <laughs> robot that's fueled by drugs. <laughs> you know, Tom Noonan's had some, some interesting roles <laughs> through the year. You know what my favorite Tom Noonan thing is? Is Frankenstein? Heat. No, Heat, man. I oh, love yeah, this. no, he's so just, good. Just fucking, he just, just got to know what to grab. 
He's got an autograph. I don't, I don't know why I love that so much, his character in that. Oh, he's great. <laughs> you no, know, he's great in so many movies. I actually just recently saw him in an episode of X-Files. I've been revisiting the X-Files. Mm. Yeah, Manhunter's awesome. That's another one of those ones, too, because like, I love... I, I love uh, just Michael Mann's shots like I love it when you're watching like Heat and going back because I didn't I was never that aware of directors when I was younger you know like in high school like that's when I started being like a film nerd and then I sort of like stopped like because I have a son now who's young so I've got this big Blu-ray collection and I can't watch my favorite films because they're all restricted well, and I mean, wait, okay. wait, here's the thing. I, I feel like kids. Maybe it's because I was brought up this way: is that kids should see restricted movies when they're eight. <laughs> well, that's the thing. He's five, right? Exactly. So it's like eight he, years old is the cutoff. It's like, well, I know it's supposed to be eighteen. Yeah. Well, but, he's now. I mean, he's now yeah. getting plots. I mean, that's basically yeah. like he's at that age. So it's cool because when I show him movies now, like he actually will like understand the story. And he gets, when I like, talk about my father being crazy, it's because yeah. he he let me watch Jaws when I was five. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great because it gave me a psych uh, neurosis. But uh. yeah, man, for me, uh, like I love. We just watched uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark the other day. I can I forgot because I haven't watched That's that. It's a movie little scary. Movie. That used to be my family's Christmas movie. We never watched Christmas films. Yeah. And so, like, you know, if our family got together at Christmas time, we watched Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I complete because I didn't watch it in like ten years or something. And I forgot just how many like mummified corpses there are in that film yes. because there, there's no skeletons in that film yeah. they're all mummified corpses that still have eyeballs yeah. with the pupils whitened and you full on see like a dude with like spikes through his head and stuff yeah. like I forgot about I mean I know the, the classic scene like he fell asleep before the arc opened <laughs> so I always remembered like oh yeah the film's fine except for that face melting scene maybe I'll turn his head away or tell him to look away or something but I pretty f- harsh yeah but I forgot about everything else the scene where the fucking snake crawls out of the mouth of like a mummified corpse and <laughs> Stuff like that. Like, there's some intense fucking images in that Absol- film. Absolutely.
And that was part one of my conversation with Pilot Priest. The next part's pretty good, too, man. We had a good chat, and I really enjoyed this one. It's a lot of fun to uh, have face-to-face time with uh, really cool artists and producers, and Pilot Priest is definitely wicked. So, tune in next week to part two of my conversation with Pilot Priest, and uh, that's all I have to say. So, I'll see you next time on Beyond Synth. I'm